All right. Well, my name is uh, Brian Paget. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, I think it's sprinkling a little bit. Um, sorry. Not like, I don't know why I'm apologizing. It's not like I can do anything about that. But I know how some of you think pastors have this special connection to the Lord, and you're probably thinking I failed, but it's not true. Um, it is an indication of how broken our culture and churches are in regard to sex and marriage and singleness that I stand here this morning with a good deal of fear and trepidation. So much could go wrong because of perceptions, not defining terms well, past abuses or experiences that shape our understanding and just the consistent cultural chaos around these things. We are spending the next three weeks in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, and it would probably have been better to spend the next 12 weeks in it. As it is, <clears throat> we're taking the next three weeks, uh, and I say that to plead with you for grace as we go through this chapter. Uh, we will not exhaust everything. Uh, we won't answer every question. You may hear something that seems inconsistent with what you've grown up hearing from pastors and leaders. For some of you, this is going to be uh, really personal, uncomfortably personal. Some of you may walk away angry and some justified. My commitment to you, as it has always been, <clears throat> is to teach the Word of God as faithfully as I can by the Spirit of God. My hope for all of us is that we'll be pushed to go back to the Bible and seek to know God and His will and His way in these matters, to submit to Jesus in love, because we trust that His ways are good and right. And before we jump in, let me remind us of one truth that I believe we must keep <clears throat> in mind lest we begin to make idols of God's gifts. In the new heavens and the new earth that God has promised for all who trust in Jesus, there will be no more marrying and giving in marriage. There will be no sex and singleness as we know it and define it here and now will be replaced with a full and holy understanding of being family, being one together. This matters right now and not just in the future as we'll see. Um, so I want to begin by praying and I want to ask you to pray too pray for me, but I want you to pray for yourself as we jump into 1 Corinthians 7. So Lord, help us. Lord, help us to, um, to listen to what you want to teach us this morning by your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear and hearts that respond. Lord, help me to be faithful in these 16 verses not just to the words that are on the page, but to the heart with which Paul was writing, to the authority by which he was writing, to what that means for us in 2021, in Stillwater, Oklahoma, in our personal daily lives. Lord, help us to bring all these things in submission to Christ and to his will and way, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to hear the good news this morning around what could be a very difficult text for many people, while it may be extremely rewarding for others, that you would be honored and that our hearts would be happy in you, satisfied in you, find that you are sufficient, you are enough for us. And we would honor you in our relationships, Lord. We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> um, this is a crazy text, right? So 1 Corinthians 7 is one of the hardest chapters probably in the Bible, definitely in 1 Corinthians. And so I'm only taking one part of it and Tyler gets the next two. <laughs> 
that's kind of how I do things around here. If it gets too hard, I get out. Um, it's like, that, but that's not entirely true. I just want, for once, if someone's going to leave our church, it's not because of something I said, right? Somebody else. So good luck, Tyler. No pressure. Um, we are talking really today about uh, marriage, singleness, and divorce. These are the three things that come up in this text that we're looking at today. Uh, and as I said in the intro, just that there is this bit of fear and trepidation to talk about this because of the culture that we live in. Now, it's not like American culture in 2000 or 2021 is something so radically different from any other time in history. Like we always want to do like, oh, there's never been a time like this. There's been way worse than this, believe it or not. It, I, I don't think you're going to find a moment in history where there hasn't been chaos and misunderstanding and radical misunderstanding around the ideas of marriage and singleness, divorce and sex and what all that means. And so what we want to do and what our aim is, is consistently to do here at Redeemer Church is to bring everything under Christ, to submit it to Christ, that we would honor Christ. And then we have that ability through the good news of Jesus Christ. So if you're new to Redeemer, this is your first time, like for us, the gospel is central to everything. It's not just what gets you through the door to heaven. That's not what we believe here. The gospel is essential to your daily lives. Everything we're going to talk about today is impossible aside from Christ. Now, what you're not going to hear me say is the only people who have good marriages are Christians. There are plenty of non-believing couples that have great marriages. But God is not just giving us great marriages to have a great marriage. That's not the point of what marriage is or, or even what singleness. And so this notion that we have of singleness, that there's something wrong with you, that's not biblical. And we're going to see that today. Like the society may say those things. And unfortunately, the church has chimed in and made you feel like something's wrong with you because you're single. And then the issue of divorce. What do we do with that? You've heard the statistics, you know, 50% of divorces or marriages end in divorce. That's the same thing in the church, yada, 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 and all this language about it. And so what do we do with this? And so we're going to look today and, and just see. What Paul's going to do right out of the gate is he's going to shift gears in the text to addressing the concerns that they've written him about. Apparently, the Corinthian church has written a letter to Paul, and they've said some things in there, and they've asked some questions in there, and so he's going to deal with the issues that they've brought up. The first issue that he's dealing with, he, he words it as a statement, but it's kind of a question too. And in verse 1, you see this, now concerning the matters which you wrote about or wrote. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, what's going on here? So the first issue that he's going to address, and then everything he's going to talk about today is going to tie into this first issue that he's addressing, this first concern, this first matter that they've brought up with him. Here's what's going on. Now, if you've read chapter five and chapter six, if you've listened to the sermons, you've been a part, like what's going on up to this point is Paul setting the stage for where he's going now. All the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, he has been building this case, and now he's going to get to their concerns. It all ties together. It's not like Paul is going, hey, I wanted to say this. Now I'm done with that. Now I want to say this. I'm done with that. Now I want to say this. No, his whole letter go, goes together. There are these different sections apart, but it all ties together. And so what he just said right before he got to this was to honor God in your bodies. That's where we left off last week, right? We want to glorify God in our bodies. And he's dealt with sexual morality and why that's such a big deal and how it's a sin against your body, but how we're to take care of the bodies that he given us. Your body matters to God. He cares about your body. When you are resurrected in the end, you will have your body. Glorified as it may be, it will still be the body that he gave you. He loves and values your body. We're to do the same. We are to honor God, glorify God in our bodies. 
That now sets us up for this. So what some folks were doing in Corinth is they were saying the only way to honor God in your body was to be celibate, to be chaste, to not engage in any sort. So really the, the actual word here, they have sexual relations. The actual word is touch. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. The word touch there is not just any sort of touch. It is dealing with any sort of touch related to a kind of sexual intimacy, okay? So what he's saying there is not sexual, it's, it's actually any kind of touch that could be seen as this. And why they're saying this is because in light of everything Paul's been teaching and understanding the Roman culture, their views, some of them were holding to this view that it was the most, uh, the most honoring thing, the most glorifying thing you could do was to be single and celibate. Now, part of the reason why that might be is because Paul was. He's gonna say that in verse six. So it's possible that some of them are going, hey, Paul is this, look at him, and this is what it means to be honoring of God right now is we should not marry, we should not be doing this, we should be single, we should be celibate, and that's how you honor and glorify God. Paul's answer to this concern, is this question basically, is gonna be a resounding no, and wait for it, a resounding yes. It's both. So we're gonna take those in order with Paul. The first one is no. Is it good for a man to not touch a woman? He's gonna say no. So the first answer is no. Now look at what he says in verse two. But because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, it's gonna be really, really difficult for us in, in, in this context, in this time, to understand the weight of what Paul is doing in verses two through five. I'm telling you right now, I'm gonna try my best to help you feel the weight of it. You're probably not gonna feel the weight of it. The reason why is because what Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 7, believe it or not, was like revolutionary to the way our world understands marriage relationships today. In the context that he's writing in, the expectation was that husbands would marry wives and they were only with them for the purposes of procreation. For pleasure, they were expected and it was legal and not seen as adulterous to go outside of their wives for pleasure. The understanding was, and, and some of it was even polygamous, they could have multiples. What Paul is basically doing here is saying, no, it's one man to a woman and one woman to a man. That would have been unheard of. Now, now he's just setting it up, okay? He's not, he hasn't gotten to the deep parts of this yet. We're going there next. So just trust me, though, when I'm telling you, we're not going to feel the weight of this because today, even amongst non-believers, in our culture, for example, in the Western world, really, uh, and I would argue in many other places of the world, this is true too, but especially in the Western world, any man who marries a woman, that then, or a woman, or either way, they go and, and cheat on them, right? That's the language that we use with someone else. All of us would say, that's not okay. That's socially unacceptable. That's not a good thing. That's a terrible thing. That's a bad thing to do. Well, that was not the case when Paul was writing this. That was to be expected of every man. Like, this is just what you did in marriage. This is what it meant to be married. So for Paul to say, hey, because of sexual temptation to immorality, one woman and one man to each other, and that's it. That's a big deal that he's saying there, but he's not done. He doesn't just say, it's one man, one woman. No, 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 he's gonna go on. So now he's setting it up. Remember, he's responding. No, it's not good that a man doesn't touch a woman. It's okay. And now he's going to give the parameters by which that is okay. 
And that's important for us to understand that because Paul is not going to say, he's not, he's not a killjoy, basically. What he's going to do, though, is change the way that we think about marriage. And in that time, it was radically different. And hear this, it was extremely empowering and liberating for women. Let me say that again. It was extremely empowering and liberating for women to write what he writes. Three through five are huge in understanding what it means to have a biblical, God-honoring marriage. Let's look at it. And we're just gonna take these one verses at a time. I don't want you to miss what's going on here. All right, verse three. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Okay, what's going on here? Marital rights is another way of this, conjugal rights. Notice who it begins with. The husband should give the conjugal rights to his wife. Now think about this for a second. If the culture is such that men who had all the power and all the authority were married to a woman who they only saw her, her only job was to bring an heir, that's it. That's what your wife was for. She did everything and she would bring you an heir. That's the only reason you would engage with her intimately, right? The notion was, and accepted by the culture, is you would go outside of all that for pleasure and everything else. So they would go to these temple prostitutes, they would go to other women, whatever it was, they were okay to do that. But Paul begins with the husband and says, give, and that's a key word, give to your wife her marital rights, her conjugal rights. Already he's starting to mess with what was culturally normal and acceptable there what he's limiting them to, what he's, wives were already restricted sexually, basically. Now he's restricting men. He's restricting the husband saying, to your wife only. He also says to the wife, give your conjugal rights to your husband. Now, I don't know when, where, why, or how this verse and the next few have become so weaponized by Christian men in our society to demean and demoralize and demand their rights from their wives and not expect the same in reverse. I don't know where or why or how that came about. I have no clue, but it is a problem, a massive problem in the church. Now I can speak to society as abroad, but I'm a pastor and I'm looking at the word of God who he's writing to these churches and he's telling them what a Christian marriage is supposed to look like. And you hear story after story and you hear this a lot at seminary with guys who go to seminary with their wives and how they treat their spouses. I cannot tell you the number of times I've had wives tell me or my, me and my wife, our family, you know, about their experience with their husband in seminary and what this looked like or people that know friends that have been there. And, and this is a consistent thing where it's like, hey, I have needs, I have rights. You're supposed to give me my rights. There is a difference between demanding your rights and understanding what Paul said here. Paul says you are to give, not to demand. You can't miss that. We use this and we brutalize people into submission to go, no, you owe me my rights. No, you owe them their rights. You don't get to demand that they give you yours when you're not giving them theirs. So what is Paul arguing for here? Mutuality. 
That's what he's arguing for here. Now it's about to get real crazy in the next verse, okay? But you need to understand, this is where he's going. There is a mutuality here. You owe her, you need to give to your spouse, your wife, her rights, and she is to give to you your rights. Conjugal rights would be dealing with sexual stuff. That's not all that it was in the marital rights, but that's one of the things. So again, he is tightening it in here and saying, husbands, you don't have the freedom that you think you have. That's immoral, that's immorality, and that should be, that gets you excommunicated from the church, and that also gets you divorced from your spouse. You don't have those rights, you don't have those freedoms. You give to your wife her rights, and she gives to you your rights, and there's mutuality, and there's exclusivity. It's just you two, no one else. Okay, now verse four, you ready? For the wife does not have authority over her own body. Now, let me stop there real quick. Because that's where a lot of people want to stop that verse. Men in this country, not all, this isn't even true of every Christian marriage, okay? There are plenty of really healthy, good Christian marriages out there. But the pervasive thing that seems to be going on, and you've seen this with the Church 2 movement, is that men are in authority. There are pastors teaching that every woman, no matter what, is to submit to men. I'm here to tell you that is not true. That's a lie. The Bible never says all women are to submit to all men. Doesn't matter, whatever. You're just supposed to submit to men. That, that, that's not biblical at all. Biblical submission in marriage isn't wives submit to your husbands and any other man out there. That's not what's going on there. And what happens is we take this verse, again, it's weaponized for the purposes of abuse to demand of a woman, I have authority over your body and now give me my conjugal rights. The problem with that is the next part of the passage says, this next part of the verse <clears throat> says that a wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What is Paul saying? Why is this so important? Why was this so revolutionary? It would not have been revolutionary for Paul to say, husbands have authority over their wife's body. That was completely cultural. They would have said, well, yeah, they had dominion over their homes. They had dominion over their spouses. They had, that's why they could use her for this and this for this. Where men had all that. That's not, that's not revolutionary. Paul's not saying anything. The culture would have been like, uh, what? They would have been like, yeah, okay. What's revolutionary is when he says, likewise, wives, you have authority over your husband's body. That was the game changer. That's what was liberating and empowering for women. Because now all of a sudden, the woman has the right to do this. So here's what'll happen, right? This is how it'll play out. Well, I have authority over your body and I got needs. I'm ready, let's go. What are you doing? And she can look at you and go, and I have the authority to shut that down in your body. You wanna do this? We can go all day. How do you wanna play this one out? I feel like I wanna do this. I don't want you to do that anymore. I have authority over your body. Stop feeling that way. I mean, that's... You see how asinine that is? But this is what we do. Why? Because there are certain people that hear authority and they get just crazy excited about power and all this other stuff that comes with authority. But here's what Paul is doing with those words. We hate authority. Can we be honest? We hate it. We wanna be autonomous individuals to each his own. 
We have the most individualistic society the world's ever known. Everything is about you. Everything is what you want, the way you want it, how you feel, everything else. Every business caters to the customer. It's whatever you want. It's Burger King, right? You get it your way. That's what everybody wants. Everybody wants it their way. We want to do what we want to do to have things the way we want to have it. What Paul is going back and pushing back really hard against is that marriage is not about self-gratification at all. It's about other gratification. To have authority over someone's body should cause trepidation in your heart and in your mind and your soul because what he's doing is saying, you now have authority over your wife's body. Your wife now has authority over your body and the way that you wield that authority, you will give account before God when you stand before him at the end. And if your authority over your wife's body or your authority over your husband's body does not reflect Christ's own authority over his body, the church, Vengeance is the Lord's and he will repay. If you hear that word authority as permission to abuse and dominate and shut down and get what you want, you are not acting as Christ and it's very possible you don't even know him. Any man or woman that wields that as permission to abuse is in danger of damnation. That's how serious this is. Paul's not flippant in using the authority language. He go, go back to chapter six at the end. What does he say? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Who has authority over you? Jesus. Before you belong to your husband or wife, who do you belong to? Jesus. And the weight of having that authority, here's what it means. Are you ready? It means we have authority over our spouse's body like Jesus' authority over us, meaning this. You have authority, and in that you are to be serving, giving of yourself, loving, understanding, sympathetic, humble. Is that not how Jesus has authority over his body? When was the last time you saw Jesus wielding his authority over the church and demanding his rights? Give me this, give me this, give me this. Now, here's what's gonna make you really uncomfortable, okay? Men, this is probably gonna make you more uncomfortable than women when I say this, but this is what you need to understand. How does Jesus then get his church to submit to him? He could dominate her. He could force us. He could say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, I'm gonna crush you if you don't do this. You get out there and do this. He could manipulate us, Huh? Come on, he can play emotional games with us. He can play psychological games with us. Well, you don't really love me at all, do you? I'm just an old sad sack. I'm a terrible person. But if you really love me, you'll do this for me. That's how some people read it when it says, if you love me, you obey my commands. Because you've grown up in conditions where people are extremely emotionally abusive to you. And you think when Jesus says that, he must be doing the same thing. That's not what he's doing. How does Jesus then lead us and have authority over our bodies and over the body of Christ? You're not gonna like this, but here it is. You ready? He seduces us. It made you a little bit uncomfortable, didn't it? It's like, nobody seduces me. That's what he does. He lures, he romances, he serves, he gives of himself. He lays down his life. He doesn't uphold his rights and fight for his rights. He gives them up freely for us. 
This is the good news of Jesus Christ, is it not? This is the gospel message, right? You can't do for yourself, and Jesus says, I will do it for you. He doesn't demand his rights from you. He doesn't come and browbeat you to death. He doesn't manipulate you. He doesn't call you names. He doesn't beat you into the ground. He doesn't demand his rights and his authority over you. You owe me this. You owe me this. You owe me this. No, he gives of himself. He gives of himself. Why? Because he knows you. He knows you. He knows what you can handle and what you can't handle. He knows when to push. He knows when to pull back. He knows when to push a little more and it's gonna be uncomfortable, but it's for your good. He knows us because he's intimate with us and he is wooing us to himself. He's romancing us to himself that we might enjoy the relationship with him. The goal is satisfaction and enjoyment in the relationship, not just some physical act, not just some thing that we do. So what he's saying, when you have authority over your spouse's body and they have it over yours, it's actually calling on you to have, listen to this, you have equal power in the marriage when it comes to these issues. You are equals. I am complementarian until the Bible tells me to be egalitarian. And you're like, what in the world does all that mean? Don't worry about it if you don't know. And if you do know, then you're okay. Here's what he's saying. We are equal as husband and wife over each other's body. You don't get to wield a certain power over them that the other one does not have. They have equal authority over you. So guess what that means for marriages? It means you are to be mutual. And it means this, you have to communicate. That's what Paul's getting at. This whole time, like he's basically saying, you need to talk to one another. How am I supposed to care for my wife's body as, a, as one who has authority over if I don't listen to her? If you don't share how you're feeling, how can your spouse care well for your body? The whole point of authority is to bring about the flourishing of the other. That's what biblical authority is. It's not domineering. It's not dominating. It's not, hey, you do what I tell you to do because I'm the one in authority here. I cringe when people come up to me and say, I want to be an elder. I should be, a, I should be a pastor. I should be, a, I'm like, you are the furthest thing from it. And there's a big difference between someone aspiring to it. That's different. And someone saying, why am I not one? That's why. I have to stand before God and give an account of my sermon today. You know that? I have to. If I'm misleading you this morning, I will be paying for that in the end. I'm supposed to give of myself. My position as an elder in the church is not power as much as serving. My whole job biblically says I'm to equip you for the ministry. You don't exist for my power. You don't exist for my ministry. I exist for yours. My whole job is to serve you. My whole job is to build you up, to bring about your flourishing, the flourishing of the church, the flourishing of the body of Christ. I'm gonna be held accountable on that. In my relationship with my wife, my job is to bring about her flourishing, not just of her soul, but of her body and her enjoyment in the marriage. She used to do the same thing for me. You see what all of a sudden starts to happen when you have this mutuality, when you move toward one another? You don't want to hurt them. You don't want to see, be self-seeking and self-gratifying. You want to enjoy together. You want to serve and love and give of yourself for their sake. That's what it means to have authority over the other. So anyone using this in abusive ways are anti-Christ, I will tell you that. And if that's you, you need to repent. You need to confess that. You need to go get some serious help and start working toward reconciliation with your spouse. 
But to have authority, man, it's a weighty thing. He goes on, verse five. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you beyond, uh, because of your lack of self-control. Now, this is another verse that's been butchered. This is another one that's been wielded and, and, and weaponized to demand, you can't deprive me. You can't deprive me. Let's understand what depriving means, okay? My wife and I have four kids. We feed them at least three meals a day. Sometimes they get like snack time in there, whatever. They're going to get at least three, maybe four or five, whatever. We do not deprive our children of food, right? What deprive does not mean is that I feed my kids every time they tell me they're hungry. And that's way more than four or five times a day. I'm not depriving them by saying no the other eight, nine times a day they want food outside of the four or five that we provide for them. What happens is people will say, well, you don't understand. I have these needs. I have it uh, multiple times a day. Yeah, you can't deprive me. You can't deprive. That's not what it's saying. It's also not saying this. If your spouse says, I'm really not in the mood. That's not the time to pull out 1 Corinthians 7, 5. And be like, well, you're not supposed to deprive me. We didn't talk about this mutually. We were not in a time of prayer. It's the last I checked. We're not doing that. How could you deprive this? There's a lot of ways. <laughs> it might be a time where a spouse says, I'm not inclined, but I can be convinced. But listen, this is a dangerous territory. Because if we're not careful, we make sex just a physical thing. And that cheapens what that's supposed to be. When it says in Genesis 4 that Adam knew Eve and conceived and gave birth to, to Cain, that no is the language that they use in the Old Testament for this. <laughs> but they use a word that's not what we do. We, we think of the physical act, you know, intercourse. That's a, what Paul is saying and what the Bible says is, no, this is about knowing and there comes a great responsibility with having authority over your spouse's body to know the moment to go, okay, not tonight. Can, can we be honest? Like, maybe I'm not supposed to talk about this because it's a church, how dare you? We don't all have the same sex drive. Should, should I not have said that? Can, can we be honest? It's just not the same. Hey, and women, sometimes yours is higher than your husband's and husbands, you shouldn't feel shame and women, you shouldn't feel shame over that. Why do we do this to each other? Depriving one another is not even about compromise. It's mutuality. It involves talking together. The seasons of prayer, just like you would deprive yourself of food for a season of fasting and prayer. That's what this has in view. There may be times in your life where things are just really stressful and really, and, and, and you just need to devote yourself specifically to prayer. This is you joining in. This isn't you going, okay, well, you can go pray. We'll mutually agree and I'll be over here just waiting so that Satan doesn't tempt me. Now, that's not what's going on here. This is you entering into it. Otherwise, what in the world are we doing? Is roommates with benefits? Like that's not what marriage is. We're supposed to know each other. 
We're supposed to care for one another. We're supposed to be self-serving. We're supposed to be self-sacrificing, giving of ourselves. We're not supposed to be demanding our rights. We need to understand, man, they have a higher drive than I have. How do we work together? How do we move toward one another, have some mutuality? What does it look like not to, and here's why Paul doesn't give specifics three times a week. That's not depriving each other. He's not saying like, hey, as a sexitionist, uh, three meals a day is what's healthy for you if you're gonna do this. You know, so if they're gonna deprive one another, you'd have three meals a day. No, he's saying, I'm not laying out for you what this looks like because no two couples are the same. You need to talk about this. You need to move toward one another. You need to be able to have that conversation and mutually agree that you are going to love and care for and serve and be self-sacrificing of yourselves for the other and to know that if this is a season where you're like, hey, not now, we're okay. You're not going to be abusive and demand rights. And listen, there are some of you in marriages right now where someone is demanding something of you, but you're going, I can't do this. Why? Because the rest of the relationship is so broken, you can't get there. You're not in sin and not depriving someone of what they want whenever that's the case. Why? Because they would actually be depriving you by you doing that. Do you ever think about that? Just because you're getting pleasure out of it, did you ever think that the other might not be and you could actually, in doing that, be depriving them? It's so much more. This was revolutionary. This empowered women and liberated women that you had equal rights and power in the marriage. Husbands, you're no longer doing this. Procreation and pleasure belong only in the marriage is what Paul does. And that radically changed everything to the day that now here we are in 2021, even non-believing couples that are married expect the same thing. You with me, me with you, and no one else. At least in marriage. Now, I know before marriage and whatever else, like that's not, it's acceptable to do whatever you want to do before marriage. But then marriage, it's like, no, it's just us all of a sudden. But there's still that there. Why? Because of 1 Corinthians 7. And you don't deprive one another, meaning you don't withhold. You don't, you don't say, no, I'm not going to do this until you give me what I want. I'm not, because then as you do that and you go on and on and on, temptation does rise. We are sexual beings and that can happen. And so he's saying, hey, just love one another is what he's saying. Don't let your spouse get in a position where there might be this temptation that they should never have to face because you are their spouse. Be mutually giving of yourselves to one another. Love one another, care for one another cherish one another. Now he says, as a concession in verse six, not a command, I say this. This is what he's been talking about. And then he says this, ready? I wish that all of you were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And what does Paul mean when he says, I wish you were as I am? That's not a command, that's a wish. He's just saying, He's not giving it superiority, but he's saying, I wish that all of you were single like I am. Do you imagine Paul today in America, in the church, getting up to preach at your church and saying, I wish all of you were like me, single? <laughs> Paul wouldn't be a pastor for very long. How dare you, Paul? It's probably why our kids' ministry is terrible. You just don't get it. I wish that all of you were as myself am. Now, Paul's not saying you have to be like me. He's not commanding you to be like him. He is simply saying, he's making a statement that I hope, I hope is freeing and empowering for any single members of our church this morning. He is saying 
something revolutionary, I think. It was in his time and it is today. Singleness is a gift. We have presented it as a punishment or something's wrong with you. And Paul's saying, I wish you were as I am. It's a gift. How do I know that? Because he says that each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And he's talking about the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness. Both are gifts. He calls it a gift from God. What's hard is for some of you, that gift is yours for reasons that you can't control. And some of you have this gift because you've chosen this gift. Both are true. But for so many of us, we don't see singleness as a gift. This is why we do a terrible job, I think, with singles in the church. We're always asking, well, are you dating anybody? Can I set you up with someone? You know what that's communicating to them. I get your concern, and I think you have to give grace there. Yeah, okay. But what it, what it can say and what it ultimately says is something's wrong. You're incomplete. And if you think that being single is incomplete, then I'd love to introduce you to Jesus. I'd love to introduce you to Paul here. <laughs> they were single, and they were, like, I just don't know the person that's like, yeah, Jesus was incomplete. He didn't find his better half, his other half. Jesus was whole. Never had sex, never got married, was never lacking anything. And in the end, no one will marry and no one will be given in marriage. Marriage isn't eternal. Oh my gosh, I can't believe a pastor just said that. It's not. Till death do us part. When you die, someone goes. We know biblically the other can remarry. And we know in the end, you're not going to be married to that person. But something different's going to happen. There's this oneness that's going to be that we don't understand today. And that oneness is family. And so here, I want to challenge real quick before I read the rest of what Paul says on singleness. And I want to challenge our married couples, whether you've got kids or not. I want you to ask yourself some, some questions. How often 